Good morning, church. As Dan said, I'm Jen. I'm one of the members here at King's, and it's a privilege to be invited by the elders to to speak to you and encourage you this morning during such a weird uh, time that we're all facing. I know coronavirus and the chaos surrounding it is on all of our minds at the moment. You might be worried about the sickness itself or the financial implications of it. And all of us are separated from friends and family with no real end in sight. We've been using a lot of wartime language to describe our current situation. World leaders have called this a war with an invisible enemy. And we often refer to the workers in the NHS being on the front lines. These are big struggles sweeping across our globe. But this morning, we're going to zoom out from coronavirus and look at an even bigger struggle, an even bigger war. This struggle goes back to the very beginning of human history. It's a battle that has affected every person that's ever lived, including you and me. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to open to our main passage now. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. If you're not familiar with uh, reading the Bible just yet, there should be a table of contents at the start of your Bible where you can find the book of Luke, where we'll be reading this morning, but the words will also come up on the screen for you. So we'll just start in Luke, chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He being Jesus. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So in this two-part preaching series in the run-up to Easter, we are following Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. And in these verses, we find Jesus traveling from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And if, like me, you grew up going to church sporadically, you might remember these verses as the reason why one Sunday a year— we all waved palm branches at each other. Because this is often referred to as Palm Sunday. 
The story appears in all four biographies of Jesus' life that we read in the Bible. And in other versions of these stories, we read that the disciples waved palm branches as well as throwing their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus. And as a child, standing with my palm branch, I remember thinking, one, I'd really prefer a chocolate egg to this big leaf. And two, what's the big deal? I totally get the whole cross, death, resurrection thing. That seems really significant. But why are we reenacting Jesus' commute to the big city? I mean, there are people who commute to work every day in the city, and we don't throw our coats in front of their cars on the M8. Of course, what I didn't understand is that this is more than Jesus simply traveling from point A to point B. When we look more closely, we see that Jesus is making a statement about who he is and why he's here. So, who is he? To understand what Jesus is saying about who he is, we need to spend a little bit of time looking more closely at an unlikely character in this story, the cult. Here, cult refers to a young donkey. That may not seem like the most glamorous ride, but it certainly made a statement at the time. Throughout the Old Testament, the donkey is a symbol of kingship, and every Jewish person present would have understood this. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is a declaration that he is the true king. This symbol goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, when Jacob prophesies that one of his son's descendants will rule forever. And he describes this ruler as being with a donkey. Later in the biblical story, God's chosen people demand that they be given a king. All of the other nations around them had a king, and they felt left out in one of the earliest known examples of FOMO. So they ask for a king. And it's at this point in the story that we are introduced to Saul, a tall, kingly-looking fellow. One day, when he's out looking for his father's lost donkeys, the prophet Samuel anoints him as the first earthly king of Israel, God's people. The king who succeeds him, who succeeds King Saul, is King David. You might know him from the story of David and Goliath. But before he's crowned king and before he fights the giant, David rides to visit King Saul on, you've guessed it, a donkey. But perhaps most pronounced is this prophecy in Zechariah. This is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews who were there that day wouldn't need to be reminded of these passages. They knew them. They would have seen Jesus riding in on a donkey, the way we would see a crown being placed on his head. 
And we see two different reactions to this. Everyone present knows that Jesus is claiming to be the true king. And this brings joy to some, and it really offends some others. So what's the first response we see? It's the disciples, and they respond with worship. They shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It says that they have seen Jesus do mighty works. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus heal the sick, give food to the hungry, set prisoners free from all kinds of oppression, raise the dead, and speak the truth, even when it's unpopular. The disciples have seen all of these mighty works, and they recognize Jesus as their king. This past Thursday in the UK, you probably heard some applauding in your neighborhood to support the NHS. It was amazing, wasn't it? We just heard this sudden uproar in our neighborhood, all this clapping and shouting. Our friends in London said that people were hanging out of their windows, banging pots and pans. It was so moving and uplifting to hear those cheers of gratitude echo along our street. And this is the kind of emotion that the disciples would have felt as they cheered on their king. They don't just nod their head in silent agreement. They shout out the truth so everyone can hear. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees, however, have a completely different response. They seem scandalized. Teacher, rebuke your disciples, they say to Jesus. They still see Jesus as just a teacher. They don't see him as king. To them, he's just another guy with wisdom who doles out good moral advice and nothing more. How do you see Jesus? Are you looking to him for occasional advice? Or are you bowing before him as your king and your Lord? You have a choice how you will respond. Jesus makes the claim that he is king. Will you respond like the disciples with worship or like the Pharisees with offense? So we've looked at Jesus' statement about who he is. He is king. And now we're going to look at why he's here. Because though it may not look like it, Jesus riding on a humble donkey, this is an invasion. The Bible paints a picture of a world with two kingdoms, a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light a kingdom of good and a kingdom of evil, an epic struggle that goes back to the beginning of mankind's history on earth. It's no wonder that some of the best stories reflect this. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all of the many, 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 many superhero films. We're drawn to these struggles between good and evil because it's written into the very fabric of our world. The Bible tells us that our struggle is not against individual people, but against spiritual forces of darkness. Our world has been dominated by the evil powers of Satan, sin, and death. 
We look around and see sickness, greed, loneliness, and we know instinctively something isn't right. So we look for things to blame. Politicians, corporations, people who don't agree with us. But when we miss the real source of the problem, we're blinded to the real solution. About a year and a half ago, my husband Chris and I bought our first house. Now, when we were looking to buy a house, the one thing that Chris said to me was, I don't want a fixer-upper. Needing to fix a room here or there, that's fine. But we're new at this. I really don't want to have to gut a place and totally redo it. A reasonable enough request, I think. And this is what we ended up buying. Now, what you don't get from these lovely pictures is the smell. The smell, I'd describe it as urine. I know what you're thinking. The previous owner didn't have any cats. No, this was the smell of human urine. As you could see, there was debris everywhere. There were holes in the floor, dirt and dust caked on so thick, I didn't even know it was possible. It was so bad, it was deemed uninhabitable by the council. Needless to say, we gutted the place and started over. Our world, ruled by the spiritual forces of evil, was as broken and run down as our flat. Left on its own, that property would have continued to decay. The smells would have festered. The wallpaper would have continued falling off the walls in dramatic sheets. To transform that desolate place, someone needed to intervene. Maybe you feel right now the way our house looked. Run down, tired, unwanted, misused. Maybe the weight of the world's brokenness is weighing heavy on you. If only someone would intervene. If if only someone could come and take this mess and renovate it, make it totally new and beautiful. I have great news for you. Jesus intervened. If we continue reading the prophecy in Zechariah 9 that we began earlier, it says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was fulfilling this promise. Riding on a donkey, Jesus, the commander of all the forces of angels in heaven, was marching to the front lines of battle. The cross. The kingdom of heaven was invading. Jesus was on the move to speak peace to the nations, 
to end war, to free prisoners, to restore hope. Instead of sitting back and commanding others to do his bidding, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, marched to the front lines of battle to fight your battles for you. He brought the kingdom of heaven into a world ruled by darkness. And at the cross, Jesus won the war. When Jesus died and then three days later rose from the dead, he defeated death itself. There are so many verses that describe this. And here's just one from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, before breathing his final breath, Jesus said famously, It is finished. What he's saying is, the battle is over, and I have won. So why do we still see evidence of darkness all around us? On the 6th of June, 1944, Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy in the largest sea invasion the world had ever seen. The Russian army was an unstoppable force marching in from the east, and it became clear that Nazi Germany was going to lose. We know this as D-Day, and we remember it as the decisive victory in World War II. After years of the threat of an evil regime, the Allied forces had their victory. But officially, the war didn't end until over a year later, in September 1945. Despite the fact that they knew they had lost, the enemy didn't surrender In the streets of Berlin, the Nazis sent youths out with pistols to fight the massive Russian army. They were a weak enemy, bound to lose, but they continued to do as much damage as possible. We are living in the era between our D-Day, the cross, and the day when Jesus returns to put everything right. King Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan in a decisive victory on the cross. But the fighting isn't over. Satan continues to try and do as much damage as possible. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, which is why we still see the pain and brokenness of sin. We watch loved ones die. We see the destruction from wildfires and disease. The enemy knows he cannot win, but he continues to steal, kill, and destroy. What does this mean for us as Christians? Firstly, take heart. Jesus has overcome. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Whatever this world might throw at you, no one can take away your victory. 
Jesus won it for you on the cross, and it is yours forever. Jesus has overcome the powers of darkness, and that should lead us to worship him. Worship is the right response, even in the midst of a crisis like the one we're in now. Right now, as we sit here, the angels are worshiping Jesus in heaven. And we're invited to join them in an act more powerful, more eternal than any other. That's why Jesus says in our passage, If my disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because no one and nothing can stop his worship. The very foundation of the earth sings his praises. The enemy can do his worst, but the people of God will continue singing. Jesus' church will grow and thrive, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Take heart, church. Jesus has overcome the world. The second thing this means for us as Christians is that we should prepare for battle. A soldier at war can't afford to be passive, to float along and see what will happen and just hope for the best. This isn't the language we see in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, Paul encourages us, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Are you being active in this battle? Are you pursuing the things of God? Are you making decisions that partner with Jesus in building his kingdom? Or are you allowing the enemy to manipulate you and deceive you? It's worth noting that there is one offensive weapon in this list of armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, meaning Scripture, is a weapon. Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he used Scripture to fight off the enemy's lies. Are you spending time reading the Word of God? Or are you leaving yourself defenseless in the face of the enemy's schemes? God has given you the tools you need, but you still have a choice whether or not you will use them. I just want to suggest two practical ways that you can use Scripture. Firstly, in prayer. I find it so helpful to use Scripture when I pray. When I don't know how to pray or what to say to God, I can always find help in the Bible. The Bible is full of promises that God has made to his people. For example, 
It promises that God will provide for you. If you're facing financial uncertainty right now, why don't you remind God of this promise to provide for you? We've done this so many times over the years, and God has always come through for us. When you pray scripture back to God, you can be confident that he will do it. Jesus also tells us to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. What a great prayer. Why not find a scripture that shows you something of what the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven, and pray for heaven to come to earth? The second way I want to suggest that you can use scripture to use this weapon, the sword of the spirit, is in proclamation. By proclamation, I mean speaking the truth of scripture, both to yourself and to other people. It's easy to let lies creep into our thinking, and scripture is a powerful weapon you can use to combat those lies. This is why the Bible talks about taking our thoughts captive. When you're feeling anxious, you can use scripture to remind you that Jesus has given you his peace, that he's invited you to cast all of your cares on him because he cares for you. Remember, this is a sword. This isn't just the power of positive thinking. The truth in scripture can cut through those deeply entrenched thoughts that are holding you prisoner and robbing you of joy. Whether you're weighed down by guilt or fear or sadness, there is a verse that can bring hope to your situation. But of course, we shouldn't hoard this precious gift for ourselves either. Many people are still trapped by sin and death, and scripture can break them free. Don't be afraid to use it. Right now, there are thousands of people who are racked with anxiety. You can tell them about Jesus, who offers a peace that surpasses understanding. There are people who are afraid of dying, perhaps facing their own mortality for the first time. You can tell them about Jesus, who on the cross defeated death so that they could have the opportunity to live forever. Jesus, our King and our conquering hero. As we've seen, the Bible describes a world of two kingdoms. One ruled by sin, death, and Satan, and another ruled by King Jesus. Which one will you serve? Will you join the disciples and the angels in worship? Or will, or will you join with the Pharisees, saying, no, that's too extreme, it's a bit too much. Jesus can continue to go about his moral teaching, but he can't be king of my life. You have an important decision to make. Fellow Christians, warriors, are you prepared for battle? Are you armed with the sword of the Spirit? Are you ready to use the tools God has given you to set people free from the tyranny of Satan? Decide today to stand firm with King Jesus. Just want to leave you with a final call to battle. 
from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. It says, Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power, forever and ever. Amen.